0: Hello and welcome to the Contextual Safeguarding podcast. I'm Carleen Furmin, head of the Contextual Safeguarding Programme and this podcast today focuses on the idea of thresholds and particularly how you apply thresholds when responding to cases of extrafamilial harm and responding to the context in which that harm occurs. We're going to be focusing on work done in the London Borough of Hackney and in particular their Hackney Wellbeing Framework which is a document that provides some context to how this work has been undertaken in the borough. I'm joined for this podcast by Sarah Wright, Director of Children and Families in the London Borough of Hackney, and Lisa Aldridge, Head of Safeguarding and Learning in the London Borough of Hackney. Hello Lisa and Sarah. Hello. Okay, so in terms of a background to this uh, podcast, um, threshold, and the idea of threshold, and I say that in inverted commas, is important for thinking about a contextual safeguarding approach. Uh, we know historically that cases of extrafamilial harm have often been viewed as not reaching a so-called threshold for support from social care, on the grounds that the harm was not occurring within the family, and particularly when the family appeared protective at the point of a referral into children's services. In addition to this, the context in which that harm occurs, so peer groups, schools, neighbourhood settings, online and social media platforms, are not contexts that would reach any threshold for statutory intervention, indeed they are not a context that would normally be considered at the point of referral. They may be considered um, as a context in which antisocial behaviour would be happening from a community safety perspective, but it's really the family context that the focus for children's services. So when developing a contextual safeguarding approach locally, areas need to be considering two things. Firstly, how do they apply uh, the idea of threshold to children and families impacted by extrafamilial harm? If the harm is significant, will that child and family receive support from statutory services? Or does the family also need to be a concern for that to happen? And secondly, uh, what is their threshold for initiating an assessment or further investigation or discussion about a context? After all, we can't be assessing every single bus stop where there may have been a fight or every single school where there may have been a high number of exclusions. So at what point would a context, reach a threshold where we might be concerned enough that we would do an assessment or consider that some action may be required or discussion need to occur at multi-agency level in order to safeguard the welfare of children and young people. So it's of no surprise, therefore, that when developing a contextual safeguarding approach in Hackney, this has been a central conversation. Um, Recently, Hackney have finalised uh, their revised wellbeing framework, which is available on the Contextual Safeguarding website in our implementation toolkit, uh, which you can see alongside this podcast. And Sarah and Lisa have joined me today to share with listeners uh, their thoughts on what it's been like to develop the document in Hackney, what it means for them, and what their ambitions are for taking it forward. So before we talk about the work that's been undertaken, I think it would help for you all to understand what the Hackney Wellbeing Framework is, as everyone's document like this will differ, and it's important for you to know where Hackney was coming from when they set about this journey. So Lisa, Sarah, uh, are you able to give us an overview of what the Hackney Wellbeing Framework is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can um, try to answer that question. Um, So the Hackney Wellbeing Framework is something that we've had in place for about... 10 years, probably a a little bit longer um, than that. Um, It is our kind of guide to matching um, need with services. What we've consciously tried to do always in Hackney is, uh, is resist the idea of a threshold document, so it's not either in or out, but it's looking at a range of factors across a whole framework Um, to try and determine what the right level of intervention um, is for a child and family. So that's where we started. It is a partnership document and it is what um, a lot of organisations would call a threshold document. I think we've just kind of played around the language over over years. But it is really, it's our guide to um, looking at a range of indicators rather than a checklist and and making a professional judgment about what level of intervention, whether it's universal, what we call universal plus, which a lot of people would call early help, or a statutory intervention. Um, And it's it's the basis on which we have conversations across the network when a child is referred into um, Children's Social Care or into other services about whether we're getting the right level of intervention
0: for that
2: child. Thank you.
0: Lisa, did you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, I think just to say in relation to um, the Hackney Wellbeing Framework, so I guess it was opportune time to think about how we um, thought about extra familiar harm within the framework while at a point where we needed to refresh the document anyway. Um, and I guess it might be helpful just to say that in terms of the, the universal, universal targeted plus and complex Universal would generally be where things are going pretty well, things are good, so that's what good would generally look like. Um, Universal plus or targeted would be where there would been some additional need identified and some sort of support or intervention. And the complex and high risk category, um, meaning that there needs to be either a multi-agency or a statutory plan. So those divisions don't necessarily relate to a tier of service provision, but an indicator of need that needs to be
0: responded to across the partnership. Great, thank you. And so in terms of moving towards the revisions that you just referenced, can you give us a sense of what this new document looks like? General overview.
2: Yeah, so um, what we've done is we've, from the old happy well-being framework, we've separated out what we identified to be individual characteristics or behaviours that we could see for individual children um, from their experiences and context within their families or their peer groups or. Locations. Previously, those indicators of extra harm were in there, but they were sometimes conflated and mixed together, so it was quite difficult to see what was something that was bel- related to the individual child as opposed to something related to their context. So, we separated out those factors, um, and it's a document that continues along the same lines of thinking about. Um, a child's health and well-being, uh, emotional well-being, um, education, family, etc. Um, as you can see across the, the top of the framework as well. There was quite a lot of work that took place to um, come together to get a shared understanding mm-hmm. of what the framework would, should look like. It was quite an interesting journey to go on. Um, When we engaged with um, practitioners at the front door, multi-agency partners, members of the project team, heads of service, everyone had a slightly different idea about what it should look like and what should sit where and whether it should be more prescriptive or whether the design and outlay... Um, should be focused on the needs of practitioners or should it be focused on what would make sense from a policy perspective. So we had to do a lot of work to really engage practitioners across the partnership to think about what would be useful for them when they're looking at this document and using it to make informed decisions about next steps. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably an important
1: point, something about the benefits of going on that journey together, both across the partnership and with practitioners Mm -hmm. and managers across the whole range of services, that that became a space for debate mm-hmm. and and um, discussion and really trying to give some more substance to what we mean by extra-familiar risk and how we rate the level of harm associated with extra risk. So I think, um, you know, one of the things that I think we'd say very strongly to local areas that are thinking about adopting this approach would be to go on that journey together. Don't just take something somebody else has done, but use it as a way of having that debate and having that discussion and helping people to really fix these things in their heads mm-hmm. as they go.
0: I agree because it's very important to then inform everything else that kind of sits around yeah. that framework. and. what we often say to areas when we meet them is understand what your current position is Mm. even if you think Mm. it might change Mm. and then have a shared ambition about where you want to get to but it's very important to get a sense of does everyone share the same understanding when it comes to extra familial harm does senior leadership share the same understanding and are we all working to the same place because there is little in the way of kind of a national position on this Mm. which means Mm. each area currently kind of working out what they're doing themselves and i've always been surprised by the numbers of people who will just say to me well when a child um, reaches a threshold for statutory support and then i said well can you explain to me what that is and there's then huge variance mm. in terms of what that is when it comes yeah. to extra familiar harm so that type of process is, as you say yeah really very important yeah. and um Listeners who have looked at the document will be aware of the section that, is in, that has been introduced in relation to context themselves. This is the first time um, that we're aware that a local authority has developed a thresholds document that relates to context outside of the family home. Um, can you give us a sense of why you thought it was important to do this and kind of what difference you think this may make to work in Hackney? So I think as part of contextual safeguarding,
2: the, um, the, the, it, the plan from a very early stage was to be able to assess and intervene in context themselves beyond the needs of individual children experiencing additional needs or harm in those locations. Um, when we started to do some pilots, assessments and plans for local areas, we quickly realised that we would need to have a very clear sense of what it was we were most worried about or what we identified the needs to be in order to inform what the plan should be, who should be involved in the plan, what the next steps were, but at what uh, level of service or level of intervention that plan should sit. So, for example, um, if there was uh, drug dealing in a local area combined with... um, a high level of, sort of adult oversight and guardianship in the local area that would likely to be in context in need as opposed to significant harm because of the intervention being there to address the concerns, whereas for one context where there were serious concerns about um, violence affecting um, and involving young people, um, discharge of firearms. And as a result of regeneration on the estate or that context, a real lack of guardianship and sense of um, ownership of that space by the uh, local adults. So that really for us then met the threshold for um, safeguarding Mm -hmm. um, complex um,
0: context for
2: us. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's really helpful. And how do you feel about the idea that children's services and particularly children's social care will play a role Mm. in these contexts is this really children's social care business or is this kind of stretching the boundaries of where you think your work should be so i
1: think um i certainly see that as still an area that we are feeling our way through Mm. um i I recognise that there's a lot of national debate, so when I talk to colleagues um, across London and in other areas as well, I know that there's lots of debate about is this a social work task. I think to my mind where I'm settling at the moment is thinking that if it's significant harm, risk of significant harm, then there needs to be a safeguarding response, and I think. You know, as we are at the moment nationally, um, social work is, is where that is located so it may not be that the social work practitioners need to do all of the interventions but there needs to be some oversight and somebody holding responsibility for ensuring that there are appropriate interventions to try and affect change where there's significant harm um, and I can't see where else that would be located um, I think there's a real challenge about capacity for local authorities uh, around that Um, I think we're feeling that Um, and I think there's also a challenge about how you um, mobilize resources to affect change in an environment where we're still not yet very sure what it is that affects change Mm -hmm. in those situations Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's a journey that all of us are on together and I think it's something that we can't just shy away from Mm -hmm. Um, and you know I think it's actually a really interesting learning space that we should be embracing Mm -hmm. rather than avoiding so Mm -hmm. I think that's where we are at the moment yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Yeah, it's great I think think that's really clearly explains it and I do think Thinking about that coordinating role is mm-hmm. is really important, mm-hmm. um, and what this does, obviously, is it frames some of these issues as safeguarding issues. Not just as crime and disorder issues yeah. um, and from a kind of strategic perspective yeah. that's really important to understand because while we may have policy frameworks that say these things are safeguarding issues yes. when mm, the kind yes. of context in which they occur don't sit anywhere within a safeguarding agenda it makes yeah. it very difficult to implement that yeah. national policy yeah. and I think
1: I, I think what I see um, certainly the context framework that we've developed, It's an early iteration, I'm sure it will change over time, but it does give more substance to what it is that we're talking about, so it becomes a document that we can use to have some of those conversations with partner agencies Mm -hmm. and get people engaged and get people to recognise why we're concerned about a particular context and what their role might be Mm -hmm. in addressing that. So I think it's just helpful to have those frameworks, to have a bit more substance, a bit more meat on the bone, understand what we're all talking about
0: a bit better. Absolutely, and it also, I think the fact that in the context threshold document there's a clear section on the role of adults and mm-hmm. every. Yeah. Um, kind of part, you know, kind of those that we consider safe or kind of supported by universal yeah. services, those where we have some emerging concerns and those where we think the concerns are more significant, that we really are thinking about the role that adults play in creating safety in those places, yeah. and it moves us beyond what can end up being quite a victim-blaming mm-hmm. position, where mm-hmm. we locate all of the change on the shoulders of the children who are in those contexts and about their behaviour, and what this helps us do is consider those behaviours, mm-hmm. they're very much there, but also consider what role adults could play in creating a safer space, and what our systems and structures uh, could do to alleviate some of that as well. So I absolutely agree. I think it is a first um, iteration. It will change over time. But I think what it does do is shift the uh, kind of tone and the focus um, from we've got concern in this locality, let's disperse all the children away from it, to Mm -hmm. thinking, well, what are the behaviours we're concerned about? What are the adults in that place currently doing, are there any at all, Mm -hmm. and what systems or structures do we have in place that we could leverage mm-hmm. to yeah. create some yeah. change there? Yeah. And I think the other thing that's probably worth saying is that it is a partnership
1: document yeah. and it has been agreed through the Safeguarding Board. Um, so we can hold each other to account around it as well. It isn't mm-hmm. just that it's uh, children's
0: social care trying to tell other people what to do. Yeah. Everybody's signed up for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um so what roles do you think um if other areas wanted to take this forward, what roles do you think need to be played by senior leaders and by practitioners I mean you've alluded to some Mm. of the kind of consultation Mm, that you went through to develop the document but do you think there are any kind of key things that people want to play in mind in terms of uh, senior leadership and practitioner level engagement? I think
1: you're right. I think we've probably touched on quite a lot of that. I do think it's engagement right across rather than senior leaders telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. You have to have those conversations and listen to frontline practitioners about the dilemmas and the challenges that they face with this and be prepared to then take those on board and try and find some ways to navigate through some of those challenges, but also to, um, to hold the risk. Because um, I think one of the things that I pick up strongly from practitioners is that, th- is that some of this work takes us into areas where we're holding very high levels of risk without those kind of evidence-based interventions that we have with children and families. So you know, practitioners sometimes feeling um, very anxious about the risk that they're holding. So I think leaders mm. need to be able to really say to practitioners, we're holding this with with you, we're all on this journey together, this isn't just about us telling you that you need to do something and then holding you to account um, for it. So I, I think, yeah, I think really important. And I think the other thing um, that's probably coming to focus for me a little bit is that we're having so many debates about which way to go on this that we could spend a lot of time debating which way to go and sometimes the senior leaders you just need to say well we're going to do it this way mm-hmm. but we're coming with you this isn't mm-hmm. you know an imposition but it's a decision we're setting some boundaries around this this is our expectation mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. at some points we have to be prepared to both listen to people and open up that debate but also take some decisions about direction of travel
0: yeah i think that's right and i think kind of when you pulled that document together lisa kind of setting out where we've got two thresholds, i thought that was really a good example of that where there have been lots of discussion lots of deliberation and then a clear position on this is the document this is kind of how we're interpreting it these are the challenges we recognize and i think that really helps
2: yeah i think there's the the dilemmas around you know whether around threshold versus skill set has been a very sort of live and active discussion around well it might reach threshold but who's got the right skills to intervene Mm. in this particular context Mm. or with this particular issue Um, so I think that was something we needed to sort of work through together with um, our leaders and practitioners as well Um, but ultimately coming down to thinking about that threshold is the, the you know the decision making, um, that's what decisions are based upon, but thinking about the multi agency plan in terms of the skill set. So, while there might be a mm-hmm. social work uh, leading and coordinating the plan with multi agency partners, um, we're fortunate to have a strong um, youth work early help service that might actually be leading a lot of the direct work with individuals or peers, mm-hmm. um, whilst the multi agency partners are taking key lead roles in um, locations and contexts. Mm-hmm.
1: So I, and I guess the other thing around leadership is also, you know, although I've spoken about making decisions when decisions are necessary, I think there's also something about holding the space for uncertainty and allowing on, ongoing learning and debate
0: within that thank you so what work um, are you having to do to think about implementing this so we've got to the stage where we've got the document and you're now having to as part of your wider approach to embedding contextual safeguarding think about how you implement that as a business as usual way of working what steps are you having to take to Mm -hmm. do that um so firstly
2: sharing internally we've launched it internally across children and families and taking the document round to various forums that there's an opportunity for managers and practitioners to hear directly what the purpose and thinking around the document is rather than looking at it as just a, a paper document to engage in some of those discussions. Um, also across the wider partnership we've had some uh, recent events launching um, a, a number of different changes but bringing this to the partnership. Um, for attention and discussion um, and beyond the, the safeguarding, Children's Safeguarding Board meetings so that partners across the range, a range of agencies have had an opportunity to be involved in understanding the thinking behind it. Um, I think at the front door which is our uh, first access and screening team or equivalent of a MASH is where it's going to be used multiple times every day between practitioners in the FAST and multi-agency partners. Um, but also ensuring everyone across the sphere can understand well, what they might expect others to do and they might expect themselves to do when they've identified mm. extra from your
0: home. Mm. Mm. Thank you, thank you. And so um, as we wrap up this uh, podcast, I guess are there any kind of key messages you think you'd want listeners to take away um, if they're embarking on this journey themselves?
1: I mean, I think I would sort of reiterate maybe what we said earlier about doing this not in isolation, but making sure that you engage practitioners, managers, leaders across um, the partnership yeah. in developing um, anything like this, and to keep it open as well. So although you know we've got to a point where this is now our published position, and we've had it printed up, and you know so this is a version of it. Um, just always entering this into this in a way that. Um, allow some openness to change over time and debate and learning. Thank
0: you, Lisa, Sarah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colleen